Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16, 2 Samuel chapter 16, so I ask if you'd be so kind as to have that open in front of you. Uh, either you can use your Bible or your device or uh, I think the uh, order of service has 2 Samuel 16. The order of service also has a sermon outline, so uh, that might be helpful as well. Uh, but 2 Samuel 16, continuing on our, our series on 2 Samuel. Well, as Christians, we have been saved, we have been forgiven. Christ has paid the penalty of our sins once and for all. We have been justified by faith. We have been declared righteous, with God not counting our sins against us. God's wrath against our sins has been satisfied at the cross. So God is not angry with us anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us. We talked a bit about this at the camp too, didn't we? Those who believe in Jesus are now God's children. And God, our loving Father, sometimes disciplines us for our own good. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5, quoting Proverbs 3, says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline is sometimes hard to bear. The writer of the Hebrews goes on in verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We see something of the Lord's discipline in David's life, don't we? God loved David. He was a man after God's own heart. God appointed him as king over Israel, thousand years before Christ. But in 2 Samuel 11, you remember he sinned in a terrible way. And God said to him through the prophet Nathan, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. David repented. He genuinely turned from sin to God. And God forgave David. He put away his sin. He would not die as he deserved to die. But God would still exercise discipline in David's life. And we've been seeing the outworking of that discipline in all these chapters since then. Earlier on in our series, we saw how his son Absalom mounted a coup against him in a place called Hebron. And there in Hebron, Absalom was proclaimed king of Israel. David knew that Absalom was going to come back to Jerusalem to claim the kingdom, and so he fled, going to exile in an easterly direction. And right beside Jerusalem in the east is the Kidron Valley, and then just past that is the Mount of Olives. Uh, and then last week we saw David and his supporters weeping as they climbed the mountain. 
And we heard David being given the news that Ahithophel, his wisest counselor and strategic, had gone over to Absalom's side. We heard him pray that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then right after that, we saw him meeting his friend Hushai, just as he approached the summit of the Mount of Olives. Hushai wanted to follow David, but David sent him back to Jerusalem to wait for Absalom. For he wanted him to defeat the council of Ahithophel and to collaborate with the spies, the priests who were spying for him there uh, in Jerusalem. Chapter 16 opens as David and his entourage have just gone past the summit. And just there he meets, on, just on the other side, he meets in verse 1, Ziba, the servant of Mahiposheth. Now who is Mahiposheth? Mahiposheth was the son of Jonathan, David's friend, and Saul's, uh, well, Jonathan was David's friend, uh, Jonathan was Saul's son, Mahiposheth was Saul's grandson. And Saul was David's predecessor as king. Mahiposheth was crippled in his feet because of an injury sustained when his nurse dropped him when fleeing for safety after Saul and Jonathan died. Back in 2 Samuel 9, David had brought him back from exile, given him Saul's estate, appointed him to eat at his table with the king's sons, and commissioned Saul's servant Ziba and his sons to manage Saul's lands for the sake of Mahiposheth. But now as David is going to exile, Ziba meets him. Verse 1 again, he meets him saddled with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisin, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Now, it must have been welcome supplies for David and his people. But David wants to understand Ziba's intentions. He asks in verse 2, why have you brought these? And Ziba avoids the real question by answering literally. The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. The king presses him. And where is your master's son? Ziba answers, Behold, he remained in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Now at this point, we don't really know what to make of what Ziba says. Is Mahiposheth really so ungrateful to David? Is he really so foolish that he thinks that he will get the kingdom from Absalom? Is Ziba telling the truth or is he purposely bad-mouthing his master to curry David's favor? Well, David simply takes Ziba at his word and gives him what he's been wanting all this time. Verse 4. He says, Behold, all that belonged to Mahiposheth is now yours. And Ziba responds with grateful support. I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. David judges by what his eyes see and his ears hear. And you can't blame him for that. That's all he can do, isn't it? Though he does seem a little bit hasty. He does seem to have forgotten the stipulation that everything must be proven by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you, if you ever come across someone like Ziba, 
someone who seeks your favor against someone else, do be careful, won't you, about passing judgment too quickly. Either way. Sometimes we do need to make an assessment, a working hypothesis to, to guide our actions. But we know that whatever we think, it's only tentative. Even King David could get it wrong. So could you or I. A few hundred years later, God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke of a future king in David's line. This king, according to Isaiah 11, verse 3 and 4, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Friends, one day King Jesus will return to judge the world. And when he does so, he will judge with perfect justice. For unlike David, he does not, he does not depend on what his eyes see and what his ears hear. For he knows everything. He's the only one who can judge. And, make, and we know that he's not going to get it wrong. So whatever happens now... We can be assured that because of Jesus, justice will be done in the end. It's hard to tell from this passage whether Zeba is sincere in his support for David. But even if he was lying, God is still using Zeba to provide for David and his people. For God is still looking after David, even though he's being disciplined. And friends, even when God is disciplining us, his children, he's always acting for our good. He still loves us. He still cares for us. And even when people are insincere, God in his sovereignty can still use their actions for good for the sake of his people. Well, as David continues to travel, he comes in verse 5 to a place called Bahurim. And there he meets another man from the house of Saul. This guy's name is Shimei, son of Gira. And Shimei is just constantly cursing and throwing stones at David and his servants. And he curses, he cries out, he says in verse 7, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Actually, I think this is quite unfair. Right? David never hurt Saul, even though he could have had opportunity to do so. And if Shimei is thinking about the death of his uncle Ishbosheth, well, actually, David had nothing to do with it. Shimei is not a prophet, but he presumes to know what God is doing to David and why. And as he looks at everything, he does so in such a self-centered way, it's as if it's all about him and his family. But it isn't. God is indeed bringing discipline to bear in the life of David, but it's not remotely for the reasons that Shimei assumes. 
And yet that does not stop him from verbally abusing David, showering him with curses on, his perceived, on the perceived wrongs to his family. Be careful, won't you, about presuming to read back into God's intentions. Be careful, won't you, about trying to interpret God's plan and purposes from, from the things that you see. Uh, you and I know the big picture of what God is doing from the Bible, but what he does in the details of anyone's life, we're not told. And it would be wise not to speculate. And we would certainly be very wrong to attack them on that basis. David was being harassed and accused by this really bold fellow. But it just wasn't right. But David is patient with Shimei. But not so some of his men. Abishai, the son of Zariah, says in verse 9, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king refuses. What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Shimei might have it wrong. David might not be guilty about, of these things that Shimei is so angry about. But David knows he's still guilty of sin. And he humbly accepts the cursings as part of God's discipline. He hopes that God would eventually grant him relief and maybe even blessing for patiently suffering wrong. Well, if David is not going to harm Shimei, then he has to patiently endure his taunts. And that's what happens. Verse 13, David and his men go along the road. Shimei is on the hillside opposite, cursing, throwing stones, flinging dust at them. And that's how they... Their journey proceeds. Not a pleasant way to go, is it? In the New Testament, Jesus endured curses and taunts of evil men as he was taken outside the city to be crucified. In Mark 15, 29, we read that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Like Shimei, these people had it wrong. For like David, Jesus was not guilty of the things that they claimed. But he was indeed suffering under God's judgment. Not for his own sins, but for ours. And God's plan was that he would suffer there to bear our sin, our punishment, our curse on our behalf, so that God could forgive us without leaving our sin unpunished.
You know, there may be times that you and I suffer unjustly. There may be times when people curse us or scold us and we think, it's not fair. I didn't do any of those things that you're so upset with me about. If you come across someone like Shimei, there are three things to bear in mind. First of all, God knows what the case really is. He'll sort it out. Right? We saw three weeks ago. Let him avenge. He will. One day he'll put all wrongs right. We can trust him to bring his justice in the end. Of course, where you can put things right now without doing something wrong, then, then you should do that. But when you can't, it's still okay. We can patiently endure now because God has promised to judge in the end. Second thing that's good to remember when people attack us is we probably deserve the scolding, but for other reasons. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. In other words, it's not as if you or I are so innocent of any sin. It's just like, like David, we're being cursed for the wrong one. So take it humbly, like David. Examine yourself. See if God is using this to discipline you and lead you to repentance, even in, in an unrelated area. Might not be the case, but it might be. You examine yourself. Like David, in his foreshadowing of Jesus, we can endure bitterness and cursing without despair on the inside and without retaliation and revenge on the outside. Because we trust in the God who is sovereign over all. Thirdly, remember our New Testament reading today, 1 Peter 4. If you suffer for doing wrong, for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, well, that's on you. But if you suffer as a Christian, well, that's different. Like Shimei hated David, some people hate Jesus. And like the servants of David, you get hit with some of the stones and the dust that the Shimeis are throwing at God's king simply because you're with him. Don't attack them back like Abishai wanted to do. Instead, rejoice, for you are blessed with the privilege of suffering with the Christ. And when the glory of Christ is revealed, you will also rejoice with him. O King David and all the people who are with him continue to travel east until they finally arrive at the Jordan River. They're tired, they're probably traveling for 10 hours or more. And there at the Jordan, the king refreshes himself with rest. And we'll, we'll see him there again next week. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Absalom and all the men of Israel arrive. And David's former advisor, Ahithophel, is, 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 is with Absalom. Uh, we saw earlier he had betrayed David and taken Absalom's side. And waiting for them in the city is Hushai, David's friend. Remember, he is loyal to David. He's gone back to spy for him. So Hushai comes out to, to, to Absalom and he says, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom is initially suspicious. 
He asked in verse 17, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Hoshai responds craftily with words that are deliberately ambiguous. Right? You can see the ambiguity even in our translation of verse 18. He says, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Right? Absalom will assume he's talking about him, but could he be speaking of King David? Commentators tell us that in verse 19, verse 19 is ambiguous in the Hebrew. Uh, one of them renders it this way. Whom shall I serve? Should not my service be in the presence of, sorry, whom shall I serve? Should not my service in the presence of the Son be the same as in the presence of the Father? That is how I will be in your presence. Now it sounds like Hushai is saying what our translation says, right? As I serve your Father, I will serve you. But he could be saying that he is still serving David even though he's in the presence of Absalom. Right? There's a play on words here which appears lost on Absalom who accepts the declaration at face value. And so the pretend king is fooled by the pretend supporter. We saw earlier that David didn't know Ziba's heart. And now we see that Absalom doesn't know Hushai's heart either. Their assessments are fallible. And over the next week we'll see this actually ends up resulting in Absalom's downfall. Even today there are many people who say they support King Jesus. They may bring gifts to him like Ziba did to David or seek to do him service like Hushai did to Absalom. But they're not really loyal to Jesus. And one day they will show on whose side they are really on. When they do that, sometimes it can be a great shock to us. Especially if they are people who we once looked up to. But unlike both David and Absalom, Jesus knows people's hearts. They can fool us, but they can't fool Jesus. He will never be taken by surprise, even if we are. So when it comes out, comes out who these people really are, then rest assured that Jesus knew it all along. So don't worry. Jesus is king, and his kingdom will not be shaken by people like that. Absalom accepts Hushai's assurance, but he still looks to Ahithophel for strategic advice. He says to him in, in verse 20, Give us your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel gives his recommendation in verse 21. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. In other words, he wants Absalom to demonstrate to everyone that there's no turning back. Right? How can you ever be reconciled to David once you've done something like that? Uh, it's the equivalent of Alexander the Great, of what he would do at Troy 600 years later when he commanded his troops to, to burn their ships because one way or other, there's no option of retreat. Right? So uh, this is what he may do. 
So Absalom takes Ahithophel's advice. Uh, in verse 22, they pitch a tent for Absalom on the roof, that same palace roof where David had watched Bathsheba bathing all those years ago. And Absalom goes into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. It's actually smart advice, as you'd expect from Ahithophel. Now everyone knew Ahithophel gave shrewd advice. In fact, verse 23 says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and Absalom. It was as if it was the word of God, but it wasn't, was it? And it wasn't the wisdom of God. It was strategic advice, but in this case, it was not godly advice. Absalom took it because he was more concerned about being smart and strategic than about being godly. And I think that's a bit of a contrast with David. Now, David does care about being smart and strategic, right? He sent spies back to Jerusalem. He prayed to God to confound the, the advice of Ahithophel. But he's even more concerned about being godly. That's why he sends Ittai and his men back. Well, he tried to do that. That's why he sent the ark back to Jerusalem last week, not wanting to manipulate God. And we know he sometimes fails at being godly. We know that. But unlike Absalom, that's where his heart is really at. Absalom doesn't have that heart. Jesus, of course, is, is perfectly godly. Even when what he does is not immediately strategic. Yet, ultimately... Godly and strategic, rightly understood, are not opposed to each other. Remember how Jesus' humble obedience to the Father led him to the cross, even though the devil offered him a shortcut. You wouldn't have thought that suffering and death are a good strategy. Yet godly obedience and humility turned out to be the best strategy in the end because God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and exalting him on high. And through his death, he saved millions of people from sin and Satan and hell. Friends, there's nothing wrong with being smart and strategic. We should be. Nothing wrong with taking advice from smart people. But the priority is to be godly. And when being godly, when being humble and obedient before God is our priority... And the word of God transforms our perspective, then being strategic might sometimes look quite different than if we were seeking to be strategic with the priorities and perspectives of the world. In the meantime, unbeknownst to Ahithophel and to Absalom, God's word was being fulfilled in the evil that they were doing. I told you earlier that when David sinned, God warned him through the prophet Nathan that the sword would not depart from his house and all the things that have been happening these last few weeks, of the last few chapters were fulfilling them. But God had also said these chilling words. Back in chapter 16. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives, oh sorry, chapter 12, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. 
for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Absalom wanted to be king. David was God's chosen king. But even then, God was the true king. He never came off his throne. And God was still achieving his purposes even through the wicked machinations of sinful men. Because that's what God always does. And we see that most clearly at the cross, don't we? Evil men conspired to reject Jesus and put him on the cross. And yet even through that, God was fulfilling his purposes. Because at the cross, God punished your sins and mine by placing it on his son. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sins have been forgiven and paid for. And even today, God's still sovereign and still achieves his good purposes, even through the wicked machinations of sinful men. We may not be able to read off the circumstances, what God is doing and why. We don't presume to do so. But we know the big picture. We know that God is calling people from all the nations for salvation. We know that God is changing us into the image of his Son. And sometimes has to discipline us in love in that process. We know that God will bring everything into the end, in the end, under Jesus. That's his plan. That is sovereign. And he is sovereign and will fulfill it. So in conclusion, we reflected on how Ziba and Shimei related to King David, and how Hushai and Ahithophel related to pretend King Solomon. And as we did that, we've seen how we ought not to relate to the ultimate king, Jesus. We've already seen how we can't deceive Jesus, as Hushai and possibly Ziba did to Absalom and David respectively. We mustn't curse Jesus, as Shimei did to David, and we mustn't attack those who do, like Abishai wanted to do for David. We mustn't prioritize strategy over godliness in our service of Jesus, as Ahithophel did with Absalom. Instead, we are to follow Jesus in humbly obeying God. We are to pursue godliness, even when slandered, and to prioritize godliness over worldly wisdom. For we know that God is king, and his purposes prevail, and even when he disciplines us, we know that he is working all things for our good and his glory. For he really does love us, his children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us and that you work all things for the good of those who love you. We pray that you help us in all the trials and difficulties of life to keep on trusting you, trusting your sovereignty, knowing that, you're, that you are the one who is acting uh, and that you'll work all things in the end for the good. Thank you that Jesus is the king whom we can rely on, the king who 
brings total justice at the end. The king who will not be fooled. The king whom we don't have to hurt other people in order to defend. Father, we pray that you help us to keep on following this king and to keep on trusting in your goodness. And we ask this in his name. Amen.